democracy, politics, inequality, leadership, development, poverty, peace, conflict, prosperity. Welcome to The Critical Take with Nopomilelo Runji, disrupting conventional thinking. In this episode, we zoom into the nation-building project in South Africa with my guest, political analyst Soma Dota Figeni. A discussion on nation-building or nation formation can take many different dimensions. In the book, Nation Formation and Social Cohesion, an inquiry into the hopes and aspirations of South Africans, produced by the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection in 2014, the authors ask a question, what is nation formation? Then they advise as follows. The process of nation formation poses a series of questions. The first being, what is a nation? Other interrogations issuing from this question and related to nationalism and the nation-state follow in the wake of this and lead to the underlying governing questions, however conceived. Is South Africa a nation-state? Is it a nation? If it is, how has it been constituted? If it is not, why not? Alternatively, is South Africa a nation-state in the making? If so, where is it situated along the trajectory of such a process? And so they conclude in, at the end of the second chapter, reflecting on thinking around South Africa as a nation. And they say, in this regard, South Africa can be construed as, and in fact is, a trans-ethnic and multiracial and culturally diverse political construct with a firmly established national territory and a legitimate political dispensation based on non-racial democratic principles and human rights values. It has a single economic, legal and educational systems. The high degree of support for this dispensation is evident in the consistently high electoral participation shown by, the, by South Africans since 1984. Against this stands the gaping and searing economic, land and educational divisions, which make for a torn and tattered social fabric. This suggests that the political settlement on which democratic South Africa was founded has not been able to overcome the history of social and economic divisions inherited from the past. And so in this conversation uh, with Professor Somatota Figeni, we try to delve into the implications of this statement, of the fact of South Africa searching for its nationhood, but facing the very real and credible threat of the socioeconomic divisions that make social cohesion very difficult to achieve. As a young person, in South Africa, I think it's become apparent to me that there are lots of questions around what it means to be a South African, you know, and how we came to this point where we are this one nation. 
when there are competitions like the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup, or the Cricket World Cup, or the Soccer World Cup, or AFCON, it seems a lot easier to identify with this uh, nationhood because of the symbols, you know, the Springbok symbols, the green, the gold, and all of that. But as soon as those periods are over, it seems again like there's this sense of alienation from this identity, especially uh, when we are seeing a lot more um, harking towards ethnic nationalism, racial nationalism, issues around race, relations, and racism, which makes people, again, go into their lagers and come together and, you know, come together in... In, in, in identity, more, more identity rather than, you know, political uh, collective goals that we have as a society. And I think it's an opportune time at 25 years of democracy to have a discussion about um, how well we have done in nation building, nation formation, but also to take the conversation even further as you have done in your project, Indulamiti project, and actually look at Cohesion, how far have we come in terms of becoming a more cohesive society, especially after the era of uh, former President Nelson Mandela, the founding president of our democracy, uh, who we actually were able to rally around, you know, and he helped us come to a sense of a united South Africa. But since his time, uh, since the era of uh, Tabombeg, it seems like we are less and less able to come together around a sort of united sense of who we are as a nation. And so this conversation is really around what is causing that, you know, what, what is the basis of that um, sense of not feeling settled in who we are. And as a young person, I have that burning uh, feeling of not being settled in, in who I am as a South African and how I answer that question when people ask me, what does it mean to be South African when I travel or when I sit at dinner or whatever? So could you just take us through your preliminary thoughts about this very broad thing that I've just brought yes. up? Yeah. In the first place, I want to say the notion of nationhood is an ideal for many nations. It's not a reality that many countries have achieved. Some are 300 years, 400 years in existence, but you still have those forces that pull them apart. That's the first thing I want to put out there, that it's not something you say, I've arrived. The second one, even when certain moments under certain leaders will look like we are tantalizingly close to touching that sense of being a collective it sometimes wanes away because of a number of factors that I'm going to get into. And therefore, you do have a roller coaster in a nation where you seem close, then you drift away, you seem close, and you drift away. With the South Africa specific project, to start with, we were one of the most bitterly divided societies under colonialism and apartheid. And the issue of identity had been institutionalized, had been embedded in our system. So it was not going to go away 
uh, at a stroke of pen because now we had a new flag, a new president and so forth, despite the efforts. The reason for that is because the honeymoon period when countries become independent can only be solidified if you have concrete investments in social and economic redistribution or justice. It can be cemented when you do have leaders like uh, Julius Nyerere, who stick around, promoted the notion of nationhood amongst Tanzanians who are drawn from many tribes. And now, today, their sense of Tanzanianness is stronger than their small primordial identities. What happened in South Africa is that one, you had a champion, Nelson Mandela, who was the face and the father of the notion of reconciliation, of coming together. He comes as a reassuring figure. He had some vision of where we would go. During that same period, there was a reconstruction and development program, which was bringing in material benefits, housing, new social grant systems, uh, free schools for some of the poor, subsidized electricity, water electrification. So during that period, there was a reason to be hopeful. There was a reason in terms of tangible material benefits. But also there was plenty of patience to say, in terms of the redistribution of wealth, of land, it would not happen overnight, it would be a process. So to that extent, you had the tailwinds which supported this particular project of nationhood. And you also had a champion and a face in Nelson Mandela. Fast forward. Tabombege also tried to articulate this. But at the same time, he raised the notion of two nations. One white and a rich and one black and poor. He was beginning to analyze the reality of inequality. South Africa today has become the most unequal society in the world. And one of the reasons is the failure of government to come up with programs that would not just have growth, but inclusive growth and development. Because growth on its own, under Tabombegi, we had uninterrupted eight or nine years of economic growth. So during that period, you had the reality of the apartheid geography. Blacks, in their concentration, were living in certain spaces. Whites were living in certain spaces. In terms of the socioeconomic indicators, as they have been recently released, you still have the color coding of intergenerational poverty, of income, of asset security. All those things not being resolved within the first two decades have created friction where people are going back into raising questions about the whole project of our nationhood. It didn't help that you also had poor leadership. It was a precipitous decline of the quality of leadership. Not just the leader of the country, but in the corporates, in the civil society, in the churches, 
in schools, in different, uh, you know, organs of political formations, the death of leadership then agitated this situation. And during that period, some of them became identity entrepreneurs. They used identity either for political reasons, for business reasons, and many other things. Not to say that it ought not to have been to raise the issues of identity in, uh, you know, issues of social justice, redistribution of wealth. But others would seem to look at it as something that should be a gift that keep on giving and not define something beyond it to say, as much as today we could say we have these racial divisions, what stands beyond it? At what point would we say we have transcended this? To them, the recurring, the reproduction of the race tensions becomes a big issue. And this comes from your far right, it comes from your far left. Uh, it comes from all different, uh, you know, spheres. So when you had no longer a champion of what the common vision was, the failure to define what the national interest is in terms of something that would rally even all different political formations and different segments of the society, all those things left a void. During the time of crisis, people then retreat to their primordial identities. They use it to mobilize. You have seen this with the foreign nationals and the locals. When they see their lot not working well, then they will look at the other as the cause of their plight. It could have been people coming from KZN or coming from Eastern Cape, and when they are seen to be making it good in a certain space, issues of identity would be raised. So those are some of the issues that have actually worked the other way in terms of social cohesion. Inequality of opportunity, inequality of income, inequality in terms of asset security, inequality in terms of just accessing credit and financial support for those who want to start businesses or anything. All those things combined are at the core of current resentment and resistance. Conventional methods have not worked. As I was saying to you, that even when economy was growing, it wasn't having a huge impact on unemployment, on poverty, and many other things. And when there was now a financial crisis, even the thin layer of black middle class that was beginning to grow simply shrunk because it had no strong base. Those are the kinds of things which are fighting against this common nationhood notion. But again, the other problem with the notion of let's have a common nationhood. Many people ask, given the fact that Western and European value systems, norms, everything, dress code, food, is the dominant one. Blacks are a numeric majority, but a cultural minority. Mm -hmm. When you say, let's have a common identity, in whose terms? Because in this era of mass digital communication, people fear the word common is a code word to say whatever was dominant, we'll use it as a basis.
and all others will simply fall by the wayside. So those are some of the very tricky issues that one is dealing with. And it's not just common in South Africa. In this VUCA world of volatility, of ambiguity, of complexity, uh, you know, we've reached a point where some of these socioeconomic pressures, migration pressures, have caused nationalisms across the globe, mm. even in places which we had thought were so advanced, the Scandinavian countries, yes. uh, your Britain, your Western Europe, your US, they have retreated into their primordial sense of identities. Nationalisms, economic nationalisms, have become a big thing. So you can imagine a frail South Africa which was already having its own issues in a world where you do not have role models that are inspiring. Instead, you're beginning to see the same fragmentation, the same fault lines springing all over the place across the world. In Bolivia today, uh, when its leader is removed, the natives are saying it's because he's native. Mm. And they are up in arms. In Spain, they say we want to break away yeah. because we are Catalanians. Mm. And um, Scotland says, I want to be out of this United Kingdom. So you're beginning to see all those primordial identities showing up. And even the advancing countries like China, India, you see that the Hindu nationalism element coming up. You see they are digging into the ancient histories to define their goal and a resurgence. So it's a very complex issue among humanity, whether the political project or the nationhood which ought to be driven by values will prevail. But history tells us there are moments when the nationhood project or even global humanity solidarity projects arise. Then they decline, then they rise. You've, you've actually managed to show us that South Africa is not exceptional mm -hmm. in this sense. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what we're seeing in the world today is around the issue of uh, self-preservation between groups who feel threatened by the implications and results of globalization, of um, you, you know, open markets, free mar the free market system and its operations. Um, around the resulting inequality from capitalism, right? The, the whole notion that competition is good, but forgetting the fact that we don't all start at the same place. And so you've got people who will benefit from a free market system and gain and be able to uh, enrich themselves and become wealthy, whereas others are unable to do the same because of inequality of opportunities that exist for various reasons in society. Starting to see that that is actually the main challenge to this sense of uh, nationhood and unity that is based on a political uh, uh, values-based vision for society, hu humanity-driven vision for society. So to what extent then can we um, begin to unpack this, 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 self, this sense of self-preservation? Um, and compare it to actually what was being used in apartheid, that Swartkafar mm. mentality, mm. you know, 
in fact, I was doing a, a bit of reading uh, in the last couple of weeks, trying to understand what was the philosoph uh, um, the theoretical uh, underpinning of apartheid. What was the thinking that informed apartheid? You know, trying to remove myself from the emotion of being upset about it. It was a crime against humanity, but actually trying to engage the thinking that went into designing a system like that. And what I began to discover is that it was also coming from a place of self-preservation, a feeling by a white minority on a continent of Africans who felt that they had no way of returning to a white majority Europe or West, right? And so they begin to devise a way of ensuring that they can prevent the majority from ever ascending to a point where it can overpower, overrule, and threaten, you know, their existence or threaten their wealth, etc. To what extent is are these economic pressures pushing uh, societies and different communities to the same ar archaic and anti-human thinking that that apartheid, you know, was based on? It's at the very core. Once people experience existential crisis. Every other idea is an ideal out there. If I can't access water, I have no living place, I have no food, I have nothing. Every other thing that we could talk about nationhood in ideal terms will remain a pipe dream. It's only when you reach an equilibrium where the political project answers the social justice issues, the material issues. Otherwise, if it is just a political project out there, you'll have instances where people embrace each other during football wins, during rugby wins, only to separate into the squalors, others into the suburbs, others into how train, others into metro rail after mm -hmm. celebration, others facing the dangers others having a CCTV camera every 100 meters. That in itself to me is to say maybe, and maybe, the political project as constructed as an ideal will sound hollow if we do not revisit it as to how the political should also mix with the socio-economic. Because having common values of decency and so forth. If I say one of the common values respect each other, person struggling to get food from the garbage bins, trying to push a trolley, has no time to think what are the traffic rules. Mm is thinking, will I eat and survive to live for the next week? So to me, there are certain basic needs that should be met by societies for people to begin to think of their high-level ideals. Otherwise, if political project goes on its line and the other issues of socioeconomic justice matters go their own line, the political project is bound to fail. As we are seeing now that self-preservation comes when people feel 
cornered, they feel existentially they are vulnerable. The Afrikaners, when they felt everything they had had been taken away by the English, they were put in the concentration camps. They were beaten in the Anglo-Boer War, which is now called South African War. What do they do? They retreat. They feel existentially threatened. Remember, some of them had also met Dingan, uh, you know, uh, and in and, and the battles with Dingan. Then they create a spiritual project to say God had a covenant with them. Yeah. The same manner as the uh, Jewish, especially the Zionists, come up with a project of saying our reason for existence can be justified through our special arrangement with God, which is different from the rest. Mm -hmm. The moment you do that, it takes on a life of its own. So the Afrikaners had this project of saying, how do we recover from humiliation? But the mistake they made was to say, we will do this project at the expense of black Africans. But that is not unique, though. People who have suffered the most, who you think would empathize and understand, are known to have gone and done the same thing you would assume that uh, Jews in Israel, right-wing particularly, would feel the empathy having seen almost six million Jews being killed in the manner which was so brutal, horrific in the Holocaust. You'd think that they would have a higher level of understanding of justice issues when dealing with the Palestinians. Uh -uh. It's about self-preservation. So those are the very complex issues of the human collective mind. Actually, to come in there, you would think the very same thing about the Afrikaners who go through what they've been through under the English when it comes to how they treat their African yep. counterparts. Yep. But then they come and devise apartheid. In fact, not only that, they send some researchers to the native reserves in the U.S., in Canada, in Australia to see how to perfect mm. what was an imperfect system. Only 50 years earlier, this experience was meted against them, somewhere in the concentration camps. So the human memory has a way of failing people to connect those dots. Hence, you would have expected that Africaners would not do that. But it's the same thing that you see in many other parts of the world. People who are victims now turning again to exercise the same thing. Maybe it's the same thing a child resenting at that disciplinarian principle. Once they become the principal, they are also pacing the same street and they have perfected the same punishment. Mm -hmm. national project and I think um, this 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 challenge lies on two sides now uh, you know when you talk to the whole issue of redistribution you know the last couple of years the issue in South Africa has been around land reform and how to carry out this land reform process the EFF came uh, you know in 2013 talking about land expropriation without compensation um, 
And that sort of reignited a conversation that had basically gone moribund. It had died down. The whole issue about the imperative of redistributing wealth, a big part of it being the land. And it's there in the Freedom Charter, but it had been sort of lying dormant. Yes, we had a, a, a state-led land reform process of willing buyer, willing seller. But as soon as the conversation went to expropriation without compensation, the possibility of amending the constitution, you begin to see that this psychology of victimhood is not just among Africans, but it's also amongst the, the formerly, uh, previously advantaged classes who are currently still advantaged, many of them, who see redistribution and redress as a threat to themselves. It's be it becomes an existential threat. And part of what I've been looking at when, when analyzing, obviously, the, the uh, May 8 um, election results is noticing the fact that if you look at the two sort of best-performing um, opposition parties, it was the FF Plus and the EFF, both which are sort of representing the extreme left and the extreme right in terms, in terms of the political space. If you think about it... Because the FFs rhyme. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, it could be. Um, but, but if you look at this issue of land, land uh, um, expropriation without uh, compensation, they're sitting on the extreme sides of it. And it would seem that society is polarized because of this. If you look at the FF's performance and the FF Plus performance... Um, and then the two uh, center parties, really, the big ones, ANC and the DA, and even the, the smaller ones, your UDMs, they, didn't, uh, they actually lost uh, out in these elections. So for me, it has, it, it has been less really about the performance of the leadership, etc. I've been looking at that nuance. And I'm wondering to myself how we are going to deal with the psychology on both sides. You know, how do you bring... So a lot of the time, it's about focusing on uh, agency amongst the, the Africans or, or the, the, the previously disadvantaged, etc., who have been made to become dependent on the state. I remember once hearing Jay Naidu in an interview saying one of the mistakes that, were, that, that, that the government made um, when they took over in, in 1994, uh, I think he was Minister of RTP then, uh, it was to... Uh, create a situation where the people or citizens become clients who expect services delivered rather than uh, seeing themselves as being involved in their own development. So how do we then address not just one side, but both sides of this dynamic um, when it comes to these socioeconomic issues? Because we cannot get there uh, without talking redress, without talking redistribution, uh, without talking about, as you said, making the economy more inclusive. But with the resistance that we also see now, even from amongst those who, who hold privilege, those who still benefit from, from dividends of assets accumulation from the past, uh, who are well-placed to support a project such as this, how do we then move forward uh, in, 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 this in, in this kind of context? Fix the microphone. Oh, it kept on running. Because it was sliding down, yes. Oh. <laughs>
Okay, I'm going to lift this. This mic doesn't want difficult issues. Yeah, it just wants... <laughs> <laughs> it shies away. Oh, okay. Okay, so I've just asked the question and I'm, and I'm saying, um, how is it in the, in the context of this po polarization that we, we now have in society? Um, how do we rally behind a project that says we have to have redress, we have to have um, redistribution, we have to build an inclusive economy? Uh, how do we rally these extreme sides, both on the left and on the right, who seem to be, you know, so ir irreconcilably divided on this question, and yet it's the question, land reform and this question of, of redress and redistribution is the one thing, and as you said in your, in, your, in your preamble as well, you know, the one thing that is necessary to bring us to the point where social cohesion can be something that can be grasped for. Well, I do think that the first thing that should happen is that the parties in the mainstream should be the ones who lead the charge in a constructive, creative, but effective manner, understanding the urgency of the matter. Only then that the parties in the extremes would begin to shrink. But the parties in the extremes will become relevant for as long as the parties in the middle or the party in the majority is not moving with speed to implement these issues. Because once you take it out of those, then it's no longer an issue as such. If there was an agitation for free education and all of a sudden free education has become policy, it's no longer a rallying point mm -hmm. per se. Mm -hmm. So the same with land. If government was to be seen to be serious about this, those who have been in the townships just give a blanket title deeds to all of them who were on the land that, uh, or the, the stands that they were not given the title. That can be done. And then thereafter, you begin to take state land, some other agricultural land, and uh, redistribute. Of course, you'd look at times there are agricultural pieces of land which are there, have never been profitable except with the government subsidies some of the land has not been used at all uh, because of the absentee landlords playing golf somewhere in Waikiki Beach in Hawaii or somewhere in uh, Australia when the land is here. So those are some of the things that we ought to be looking at and moving with great speed. But on top of that, unemployment is one of the most pressing issues because it puts food on the table. And the youth unemployment is a powder keg that, if not addressed immediately, it's going to explode. And the paradox now, you have this unskilled and semi-skilled labor swelling. In the era of fourth industrial revolution where automation is replacing jobs. So some mechanism to quickly address this intuitively becomes very important. So in your um, indelimity scenarios for South Africa, which deals with um, 
how to arrive at a socially cohesive South Africa by 2030. You um, identify three key drivers, income, inequality, uh, and then you've got one that is, is triple R, which is reconciliation, resistance, resistance and uh, uh, resentment. resentment. Mm. And then the last one has to do with institutional and leadership capacity. Yes. And I want us to now delve into that last one. I think we've dealt with the, the other, other two drivers. Um, you've spoken a bit about the responsibility of political leadership. And you've spoken about the responsibility of the mainstream parties. One of my challenges with uh, the mainstream parties, particularly the, the two major parties, the Democratic Alliance and the African National Co uh, Congress, is this um, seeming inability to agree with the import about the importance of redress, particularly mm. the Democratic mm. Alliance. Of course, the, the African National Congress, we've, they've, they've, put to, uh, they've put in place policies, um, affirmative action, uh, broad-based black economic empowerment. We can talk about the failures of those or the successes of those, you know, the mm. pros and cons. However, there, there, is, there, there continues to be this debate about uh, a post-racial, uh, you know, South Africa that does not need to engage with the injustices of the past in any sort of serious manner that comes from the Democratic Alliance. To what extent is that uh, a, a leadership deficit that could threaten, you know, us achieving um, this socially cohesive South Africa? In fact, it's not just a leadership deficit. The latest trends within the DA shows the party regressing back into its default path. Wherein the racial diversity you are seeing in its leadership is sort of wiping out. Wherein the strides that made about issues of redress, affirmative action, they are now retreating from those. So you could expect a party becoming more conservative and more constrained to white privilege preservation in whatever elegant language they may put it. Because when you say, let's not talk about race, let's talk about opportunities, let's talk about everything in South Africa, race and opportunity are actually linked. Because you have this infrastructure of white privilege, which is not extended to blacks in many instances. If you live in a white suburb, before you ask any question, you go to an insurance company, they'll say your insurance will be lower, you are in a less risk area. If you say I'm from Soweto, already you are going to pay 300 rands more, purely by coming from that space. Tell me if, if there is no correlationship to race, to those things. Tell women that we will no longer refer to you as uh, per your gender. We'll just treat each individual case because opportunities are arranged like that. Tell Jews we will no longer talk about you as a group. We'll deal with you, your individual case by case. It doesn't happen. So it's a fallacy that the opposition party, the main opposition party, DA, is embracing what in essence are very conservative, regressive policies from the strides they, they had uh, taken 
And it's also a sign of leadership crisis, frankly speaking. And also a lack of vision because it looks like their reaction is to the small numbers they lost to the FF plus rather than their failure to gain more from blacks. So what they are saying in their statistics for even bringing in the likes of Maiman and other black leaders, Mashaba, in the recent elections, they didn't bring as a magnet the number of blacks we need. So we are going back to where we were. Mm. And that in itself is not a positive development because it can only be about preservation of particular group privilege. Mm. Um, I think this is the final question um, because of time. Now, still on this question of leadership, a lot of the time when we have these discussions about the developmental um, trajectory of the country, we spend little time questioning the role of the private sector and the uh, role or, or the, the leadership role that should be played by corporate South Africa, by the JSE-listed uh, companies in driving... Uh, or being or participating in leading this quest towards a more cohesive society. If we're talking about uh, wealth redistribution, if we're talking about uh, creating jobs, if we are talking about economic growth uh, and, how, and, and, and whatever ways we use to then translate that growth into development, we cannot have that conversation without asking the question about the role and the lead that it is going to be taken by, by the private sector. And, of course, you are a political analyst that actually has a pulse even on, on, the, on, on that mm. side. You, mm. You've sat with these groupings. You've mediated. You've had uh, numerous discussions that involve pro political leadership in the country as well as business leadership. And what is your sense about... With, about whether or not we are going to see a shift in this sort of what some have called an investment uh, boycott, some have called a withholding, you know, of, 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 of loads and loads, millions, upon, even billions um, of, of, of rand that could be going and being pumped into the local economy to create these jobs and to support this vision for a, a more um, integrated, inclusive economy and, and therefore society. Uh, what is your sense of, of, of what's going on in, 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 the, in the private sector and what should happen? I've had numerous engagements with the private sector on the basis of Inclulamity. We had to meet with political formations, with CEOs of companies, with forums. Uh, there is a realization that the business sector has been taking a back seat. And yet it is sitting on in excess of 3 trillion rents, which they are not investing back to the economy. So the liquidity and the cash-flushed entities, including our banks, by the way, were some observers from outside the country, as cited by former President Tabombegi said, 
Even if there was a global financial crisis, South African banks would survive without borrowing from anybody. That's how much cash they are sitting on. Now they are beginning to realize, one, that their non-involvement in the long run is going to destabilize their businesses. Hence, in the business forums, you're beginning to see some of the businesses coming forward, but still very minimalist in their engagement. The second one, they used to swear that given globalization, we can take our companies elsewhere. There is no elsewhere in the world today. The whole world is boiling. Uh, it's an equal opportunity inconvenience everywhere. You say, I was going to Hong Kong. Hong Kong mm. is having its problems. Chile is having its problems. Spain is having its problems. Britain, after Brexit, no one knows. Germany is beginning to show signs of strain and shrink. And, uh, uh, you know, identity politics across those places, USA has its own challenges. So people are beginning to realize that you have to sit where you are if your pasture or your lawn is brown, water it until it is green. Rather than rushing with your bags of money looking for green pastures. The whole world is very unstable at this stage. Whether you move from the Gulf, North Africa, rest of Africa, North America, South America, Asia, everywhere, there are threats. Some who used to say, I'll go to New Zealand, which is a safe haven, you never have anything. Mass shootings now have moved to those places because identity issues are beginning to come up. So there is a realization where people are saying, after all, we've been sitting in this jewel where you can have a gardener, uh, 17 gardeners, several helpers, one for ironing, one for... When you get to those countries, you can't do that because a helper has to be paid per hour. Here you say, I'll give you whatever pittance at the end of the month. So there is a realization among some of them that let's make this thing work. And also realization that the pursuit of profit at all costs as a bottom line without considering the environmental issues, without considering social responsibility issues, in the long run is going to boomerang against the companies. Once you start having protests reported frequently as traffic report, as weather report, it means your logistics of moving things around are going to be constrained. It means the poor, when they are angry, you end up having to send your kids by a helicopter to the school because you can no longer navigate the roads. So there is that realization. What they say they are looking for is now policy certainty and leadership certainty, which has also been a problem in our case, where you're not sure what is the policy. And after two years, policies change. It was RDP, you have GEAR, you have GIPSA, you have ASKISA, your new growth path, new development plan, and they just keep tiptoeing and so forth. So that realization that government alone can no longer solve these problems 
the need to be collective maximum effort to make them work is beginning to dawn. Even as they explore opportunities in the rest of the continent, such as the one of the Free Africa Trade Agreement, they would rely on government doing the work of opening up, and when they have challenges, they would have to come back to government. So that realization that they have to work together is beginning to dawn. But we'll see how much commitment is there. Even as we talk to them, we are saying it's not just a matter of charity giving pens to that school. Very painful trade-offs have to be made. Mm. Because some of our businesses and the concentration of wealth in places like Stellenbosch, it is reported in some reports that it's the richest square mile area in the world. Now, you can see the inequality that has been happening is because other people, especially those who were there before, had the infrastructure to extract, but they didn't have the compassion to distribute some of what they got. Yeah, hey, you take me to another discussion about extractive economies, extractive politics, and how they actually reinforce each other. And I think that's one of the crises of the uh, post-apartheid um, dispensation in South Africa is that although we have changed and brought in a constitution that has put in place freedom, justice, equality, and all of that, we have not changed the extractive nature yep. of our economics and the extractive nature of our politics. In fact, the political elite is as extractive, if not more extractive. In fact, they are assimilated to the dominant business class. Yeah. And in their assimilation, whilst these other business classes took 40 years to reach where they are, they want to microwave their wealth into one year. Yeah. They want those seven assets, a house in Naisna, a house in Umtlanga Rocks, a house in Sentin. They want them now. Yeah. So that is the crisis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure.